This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Every month, we ask a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. On this program, we'll hear a story by Tobias Wolf called Bullet in the Brain. What do you tell us hits the alarm? You're all dead meat. Got it? The tellers nodded. Oh, bravo, Anders said. Dead meat. The New Yorker first published Bullet in the Brain in 1995, and it was selected this month by novelist T.C. Boyle, who has published 19 stories in the magazine since 1993. His most recent novel, Talk Talk, came out last year. He joins us from the studios of the Production Room in Santa Barbara, California. Hi, Tom. Hi, Deborah. There are thousands of stories in the New Yorker archive, but you told me that it took you about 30 seconds to choose Bullet in the Brain. It's one of your all-time favorites. Can you tell me why? What I love about Bullet in the Brain is that it takes you into a um, space you couldn't imagine. From the first line to what happens at the end is inconceivable. Toby Wolf has written two novels, but he's better known for his memoirs, This Boy's Life and In Pharaoh's Army. And as a master of the short story form, he's often lumped together with other inveterate classical short story writers like Raymond Carver and Andre Dubus. Do you think he belongs in that grouping? Yes, I do. I think he is an individual, of course, um, with his own style. He and Ray Carver taught together at Syracuse University, and I'm sure that there was a mutual influence there. Ray Carver was a, a friend of mine. I met him at the Iowa Writers' Workshop when I was a student there, and his work has influenced mine, too. Of all my contemporaries, I've read Toby's work in its entirety, all his books, as a fan, and I didn't meet him until a couple of years ago at the New Yorker Festival, and now each year at the festival we become reacquainted. He's just a, a writer who has intrigued me and whose work turns me on. And do you think there's something particular about his style that lends itself to short stories rather than longer fiction? Well, he, yeah, he certainly has the gift of brevity, that's for sure. <laughs> I find my own stories lately being a little fuller and uh, a little longer. If I look back at stories I wrote 20 years ago, maybe they're more at the length of Bullet in the Brain. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because of writing novels so much and going between stories and novels. And I do make a point of trying to find a small idea for a small story. Toby seems to be a master at that. I think this story, Bullet in the Brain, at its length, is perfect. We'll talk more after the reading. Now here's T.C. Boyle reading Tobias Wolff's story, Bullet in the Brain. Anders couldn't get to the bank until just before it closed, so, of course, the line was endless, and he got stuck behind two women whose loud, stupid conversation put him in a murderous temper. He was never in the best of tempers anyway, Anders. A book critic known for the weary, elegant savagery with which he dispatched almost everything he reviewed. With the line still doubled around the rope, one of the tellers stuck a position closed sign in her window and walked to the back of the bank where she leaned against the desk and began to pass the time with a man shuffling papers. The women in front of Anders broke off their conversation and watched the teller with hatred. Oh, that's nice, one of them said. She turned to Anders and added, confident of his accord, one of those little human touches that keeps us coming back for more. Anders had conceived his own towering hatred of the teller, but he immediately turned it on the presumptuous crybaby in front of him. Damned unfair, he said. Tragic, really. If they're not chopping off the wrong leg or bombing your ancestral village, they're closing their positions. She stood her ground. I didn't say it was tragic, she said. I just think it's a pretty lousy way to treat your customers. Unforgivable, Anders said. Heaven will take note. She sucked in her cheeks, but stared past him and said nothing. 
Anders saw that the other woman, her friend, was looking in the same direction. And then the tellers stopped what they were doing, and the customers slowly turned and silence came over the bank. Two men wearing black ski masks and blue business suits were standing to the side of the door. One of them had a pistol pressed against the guard's neck. The guard's eyes were closed and his lips were moving. The other man had a sawed-off shotgun. Keep your big mouth shut, the man with the pistol said, though no one had spoken a word. One of you tellers hits the alarm, you're all dead meat, got it? The tellers nodded. Oh, bravo, Anders said, dead meat. He turned to the woman in front of him. Great script, huh? The stern, brass-knuckled poetry of the dangerous classes. She looked at him with drowning eyes. The man with the shotgun pushed the guard to his knees. He handed the shotgun to his partner and yanked the guard's wrists up behind his back and locked them together with a pair of handcuffs. He toppled them onto the floor with a kick between the shoulder blades. Then he took his shotgun back and went over to the security gate at the end of the counter. He was short and heavy and moved with peculiar slowness, even torpor. Buzz him in, the partner said. The man with the shotgun opened the gate and sauntered along the line of tellers, handing each of them a hefty bag. When he came to the empty position, he looked over at the man with the pistol, who said, Whose slot is that? Anders watched the teller. She put her hand to her throat and turned to the man she'd been talking to. He nodded. Mine, she said. Then get your ugly ass in gear and fill that bag. There you go, Anders said to the woman in front of him. Justice is done. Hey, bright boy, did I tell you to talk? No, Anders said. Then shut your trap. Did you hear that, Anders said, bright boy, right out of the killers. Please be quiet, the woman said. Hey, you deaf or what? The man with the pistol walked over to Anders. He poked the weapon into Anders's gut. You think I'm playing games? No, Anders said. But the barrel tickled like a stiff finger, and he had to fight back the titters. He did this by making himself stare into the man's eyes, which were clearly visible behind the holes in the mask, pale blue and rawly red-rimmed. The man's left eyelid kept twitching. He breathed out a piercing, ammoniac smell that shocked Anders more than anything that had happened, and he was beginning to develop a sense of unease when the man prodded him again with the pistol. You like me, bright boy? You want to suck my dick? No, Anders said. Then stop looking at me. Anders fixed his gaze on the man's shiny wingtip shoes. Not down there, up there. He stuck the pistol under Anders' chin and pushed it upward until Anders was looking at the ceiling. Anders had never paid much attention to that part of the bank, a pompous old building with marble floors and counters and pillars and gilt scrollwork over the teller's cages. The domed ceiling had been decorated with mythological figures whose fleshy, toga-draped ugliness Anders had taken in at a glance many years earlier and afterward declined to notice. Now he had no choice but to scrutinize the painter's work. It was even worse than he'd remembered and all of it executed with the utmost gravity. The artist had a few tricks up his sleeve and used them again and again, a certain rosy blush on the undersides of the clouds, a coy backward glance on the faces of the cupids and fawns. The ceiling was crowded with various dramas, but the one that caught Anders's eye was Zeus and Europa, portrayed in this rendition as a bull ogling a cow from behind a haystack. To make the cow sexy, the painter had canted her hips suggestively and given her long, droopy eyelashes through which she gazed back at the bull with sultry welcome. The bull wore a smirk, and his eyebrows were arched. If there'd been a bubble coming out of his mouth, it would have said, Hubba Hubba. What's so funny, bright boy? Nothing. You think I'm comical? You think I'm some kind of clown? No. You think you can fuck with me? No. Fuck with me again, 
Your history, capiche? Anders burst out laughing. He covered his mouth with both hands and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, then snorted helplessly through his fingers and said, Capiche? Oh, God, capiche? And at that, the man with the pistol raised the pistol and shot Anders right in the head. The bullet smashed Anders's skull and plowed through his brain and exited behind the right ear, scattering shards of bone into the cerebral cortex, the corpus callosum, back toward the basal ganglia and down into the thalamus. But before all this occurred, the first appearance of the bullet in the cerebrum set off a crackling chain of ion transports and neurotransmissions. Because of their peculiar origin, these traced a peculiar pattern, flukishly calling to life a summer afternoon some forty years past and long since lost to memory. After striking the cranium, the bullet was moving at 900 feet per second, a pathetically sluggish, glacial pace compared to the synaptic lightning that flashed around it. Once in the brain, that is, the bullet came under the mediation of brain time, which gave Anders plenty of leisure to contemplate the scene that, in a phrase he would have abhorred, passed before his eyes. It is worth noting what Anders did not remember, given what he did remember. He did not remember his first lover, Sherry, or what he had most madly loved about her before it came to irritate him, her unembarrassed carnality, and especially the cordial way she had with his unit, which he called Mr. Mole, as in, uh-oh, looks like Mr. Mole wants to play, and let's hide Mr. Mole. Anders did not remember his wife, whom he had also loved before she exhausted him with her predictability, or his daughter, now a sullen professor of economics at Dartmouth. He did not remember standing just outside his daughter's door as she lectured her bear about his naughtiness and described the truly appalling punishments Paul's would receive unless he changed his ways. He did not remember a single line of the hundreds of poems he had committed to memory in his youth so that he could give himself the shivers at will. Not, silent, upon a peak in Darien, or, my God, I heard this day, or, all my pretty ones, did you say all? Oh, hell, kite, all? None of these did he remember, not one. Anders did not remember his dying mother saying of his father, I should have stabbed him in his sleep. He did not remember Professor Joseph's telling his class how Athenian prisoners in Sicily had been released if they could recite Aeschylus, and then reciting Aeschylus himself right there in the Greek. Anders did not remember how his eyes had burned at those sounds. He did not remember the surprise of seeing a college classmate's name on the jacket of a novel not long after they graduated, or the respect he had felt after reading the book. He did not remember the pleasure of giving respect. Nor did Anders remember seeing a woman leap to her death from the building opposite his own just days after his daughter was born. He did not remember shouting, Lord, have mercy! He did not remember deliberately crashing his father's car into a tree or having his ribs kicked in by three policemen at an anti-war rally or waking himself up with laughter. He did not remember when he began to regard the heap of books on his desk with boredom and dread or when he grew angry at writers for writing them. He did not remember when everything began to remind him of something else. This is what he remembered. Heat. A baseball field. Yellow grass, the whir of insects, himself leaning against a tree as the boys of the neighborhood gather for a pickup game. He looks on as the others argue the relative genius of mantle and maize. They have been worrying this subject all summer, and it has become tedious to Anders, an oppression like the heat. Then the last two boys arrive, Coyle and a cousin of his from Mississippi. Anders has never met Coyle's cousin before and will never see him again. He says hi with the rest of them, but takes no further notice of them until they've chosen sides and someone asks the cousin what position he wants to play. Shout stop, the boy says. Shout's the best position they is. Anders turns and looks at him. He wants to hear Coyle's cousin repeat what he's just said, but he knows better than to ask. 
The others will think he's being a jerk, ragging the kid for his grammar. But that isn't it. Not at all. It's that Anders is strangely roused, elated by those final two words, their pure unexpectedness, and their music. He takes the field in a trance, repeating them to himself. The bullet is already in the brain. It won't be outrun forever or charmed to a halt. In the end, it will do its work and leave the troubled skull behind, dragging its comet's tail of memory and hope and talent and love into the marble hall of commerce. That can't be helped. But for now, Anders can still make time. Time for the shadows to lengthen on the grass. Time for the tethered dog to bark at the flying ball. Time for the boy in right field to smack his sweat-blackened mitt and softly chant, They is, they is, they is. That was T.C. Boyle reading Bullet in the Brain by Tobias Wolfe, which was first published in the magazine in 1995. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Tom, there are two very separate parts to this story. And in the first one, Anders is more or less a cartoon. And in the second one, we find out what made him that way. And we also find out just how human he really is or used to be. Is that a structure that you think highly of? Yes, absolutely. It's the kind of mode that Flannery O'Connor would work in, setting up a comic universe and then turning it on you so that something very poignant develops from it. Anders is sort of a cartoon in the beginning. I can see the writer getting his rocks off on laying into this particular critic, the critic who couldn't remember when he last enjoyed something and when he began to resent writers for writing books. This is a guy who is a comic figure. And yet, the genius of the story comes after the bullet hits the brain and what happens in the brain and what his memories are. And that gives us all the backstory in a very unique way. And um, this humanizes him so that uh, when we do get to those final lines, we're really feeling something we didn't expect to feel at the beginning. We expected we were going to be in a satiric story. How do you account for Anders' incredible lack of fear in this situation? Do you think that Toby is trying to say something about this particular character, or is he talking in more metaphorical terms about the wall between the critic and the experience of the world? I think Anders is oblivious because he is used to having a very sarcastic attitude toward everything, everything that happens, so that I think he's begun to forget the difference between the fiction that he reviews, and the actual facts of life. And I think he's become, as many narcissistic personalities do become, unaware that other people exist or have emotions, and he is so deadened to that that he doesn't really understand 
the danger he's in. Right. That's part of the beautiful tension of the first part of the story. The woman online with whom he's talking says, uh, you know, please be quiet. But he doesn't take any notice of that because he's involved in a critical view of what's happening. This is an exciting situation. Some guy is robbing a bank and he's, he's doing it in this retrograde way and using these ridiculous, cliched expressions. And it's, it's kind of amusing to him. He doesn't really understand that it's real, that anything is real. Well, the fact that he could find the gun making him ticklish <laughs> is, is incredible. Yeah, and it's, it's so amusing. And yet the reader is cringing inside because the reader understands from what the guy with the mask is saying that we're, uh, we're in some dangerous territory here, even if Anders doesn't appreciate that. Both halves of the story are about language in some way. In the first half, Anders is mocking the cliches that the bank robbers use. Mm. And in the second, as a child, he's just elated by discovering ungrammatical vernacular. And both of these are things that a writer could experience. And yet Toby has given them to a completely odious character. Yeah. A language has everything to do with it. It's the cliched language that the robber uses that pushes Anders to the brink. And yet in that moment of his recollection, he remembers when language excited him. Not simply the language of the poems that he used to memorize or the novels he used to enjoy and respect, but the odd language that he hears from this one child who came from a different region and has different usage. It's rhythmic. It's beautiful. It's something he'd never heard before. It's an appreciation. Whereas when we meet him in the beginning of the story, he's beyond appreciation. He's so much invested in his role as critic that there is no enjoyment anymore. Do you think it's worth dying for a cliché? <laughs> it, it, for Anders, absolutely. You know, it, it's a good way for him to go. I probably would have been a little bit more aware of the situation. <laughs> there's, there's a concision in the story. I mean, that, I'm not sure quite how long, maybe 500 words, 600 words of backstory, of life story, could be filled out to a novel. You know, what Toby has taken is these several little scenes, which are each given in a sentence or, or less, which if you had chosen to write a novel, could have taken the whole chapter. <laughs> That's right. It's also very clever when, toward the end, it's worth noting what Anders did not remember. That's a clever way of setting us up. And then the second part of the sentence is, given what he did remember. So first we're going to hear what he did not remember. And... Uh, that's a great way of giving us the information. And the information is selected very carefully to give this whole life story, this whole expanse of a novel, so we understand who he is. And this happens in one long paragraph. And then it follows into two more paragraphs of who he was and what he believed in. And then what did he remember? What he remembered is very different from his backstory or the exposition of his life, which, as you say, could be individual chapters in a novel, obviously. But at the end, what he remembers is a sensual thing, a sensual thing that brings him back to the question of language at the end and of enjoyment and of appreciation. Why he became what he became. Yes, that's right. But it took a bullet in the brain to remind <laughs> him of that. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome, Deborah. What a pleasure it has been. T.C. Boyle's latest novel, Talk Talk, is out in paperback from Penguin. His most recent story, Ash Monday, can be found on our website, newyorker.com. You can also read several stories by Tobias Wolff on our website. Bullet in the Brain is collected in his book, The Night in Question, which was published in paperback by Vintage. To subscribe to this and other free New Yorker podcasts, please visit the iTunes store. 
You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>